You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. This is episode number 75. Practical Aspects of Subgroup Detection, an interview with Nestet Gunzoy. I'm so excited to say that we are launching again our leadership program, the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. It launches in November and you can sign up for it during the period now. There's a, there's a landing page already where you can go to. It's at the Effective Statistician and there you will find the leadership program. And of course, then you can sign up there. We have um, this program designed for statisticians to strengthen your leadership skills so that you can maximize your impact at work even if you don't have direct reports so this is not something for you know restricted to supervisors or be be becoming supervisors this is really for every statistician and it's a program that is a mixture of webinars podcasts and moderated small group discussions and uh, We have for the current um, cohort, we have students that coming from pharma, from CRO and from academia and with very, very different levels of experience because we think all statisticians can be leaders and we have really, really nice success stories um, from the uh, leadership program. So there was, for example, one statistician that worked in a CRO and that where the program completely changed his mind in terms of how he sees his work, what he can do, and he now sees his contribution very differently and through that is able to deliver much better quality to the customers of the Zero and have this bigger uh, point of view um, uh, in mind and uh, be a relevant um, discussion partner for um, higher ups in his organization or the other uh, statistician that because of the program reached out to, to um, other people that are, were using his data and were seeing that they were using the analysis results or the data that they received in a very very poor and um, difficult way so that they needed you know a complete day to to make a decision and now he can help them uh, to make the decisions in five minutes because he understood kind of the bigger picture he um, saw his colleagues in a different way and really t took ownership there so really really nice examples and um, would be so great if you could benefit uh, from that as well. If you want to find out more, go to the Effective Statistician homepage and learn there at theeffectivestatistician.com slash course and there you will find uh, all the further details. It would be awesome to have you in the, uh, in the program. Now, in today's episode, we'll actually also talk quite a lot about uh, leadership skills 
because managing these frustrations about subgroup analysis requires lots of leadership skills and that will be kind of a uh, theme throughout this uh, episode and um, Nashdad is a really really nice uh, presenter and uh, it was a uh, really nice episode uh, to record with him and um, the, the background uh, for this episode is a presentation that he gave at the PSI conference in 2019 and it was such a good presentation actually he delivered two very good uh, presentations that he received the effective statistician uh, presentation award best presentation award for uh, these presentations there um, so join me for a really nice discussion with Nestad about practical aspects of subgroup detection. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. So reduced rate is only 20 pounds per year for non-high income countries and 95 pounds for high income countries. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode and This time I have a guest here with me, uh, with whom I'm actually, uh, working together for, for quite some time on, on various topics. And he did an awesome job in, um, presenting about this at the PSI conference in 2019. And, um, that was so good that, um, he actually won an award for for uh doing the best presentation and today we'll talk a little bit about um the presentation uh skills but mostly we will focus actually on the content uh, of his presentation which of course as a member of psi you can find on the video on demand content library uh, just go to psiweb.org and And if you are not yet a member, you should really become one. <laughs> so, welcome, Nestad. How are you doing? Hi, Alexander. I'm very good. Thank you. Okay. So, so as most of the listeners probably don't know you, maybe you can give you um, give a little bit of an introduction of what you have been interested in so far in your career and um, what your life within pharma has been up to now. Yeah, so I'm uh, Nechdet Gansoy. Um, I work at GSK currently. I'm a director in um, analytics and innovation. I know it sounds very fancy, um, but uh, basically um, our group um, is sort of a stats consultancy group where we um, support teams in stats methodology, study design, decision making, benefit risk, subgroup analyses, all those kinds of things. And uh, we mainly operate in sort of the Uh, reimbursement space, but we do a lot of um, we do a lot of um, consulting in the in the did, um, in the development space as well. 
um, to make sure that um, that the studies are being designed in the right way to help us um, um, achieve um, uh, re reimbursement. Um, I started off in clinical statistics um, in, uh, when I first joined GSK. So I was working in um, respiratory and clinical statistics and, you know, had all the different kinds of headaches that the statisticians have. You know, uh, we're talking about subgroup analyses today. So I did uh, I did a couple of, you know, Aminog uh, processes with all the analyses. And um, yeah, Aminog, by the way, if you don't know, as a listener, uh, that's the German laws that regulate the HTA submissions in, in Germany. Yeah, so if you ever had a list of uh, 300, 400 subgroup analyses, that's the one. <laughs> that's what it's for. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've I guess, um, naturally gained an interest in uh, subgroup analyses, uh, more in like uh, in, in an efficiency um, domain um, in initially, and then later on more uh, methodological, um, which was the emphasis of the presentation. Um, and I I'm, I'm also have uh, interest in... Um, uh, benefit risk uh, assessment, the quantitative kind, um, machine learning, um, and you know, uh, and, and you know, decision making in general. So, um, this this the, the the presentation was around um, subgroup detection, which kind of um, couples together my interest in subgroup analyses and machine learning um, a bit together. So, um, um, that's how it all came about. Yeah, yeah, and of course, you also. Uh had a really, really nice presentation in the benefit-risk uh, section of the uh, conference. But we're not talking about that so much. And if you want to learn more about benefit-risk, just scroll back in your player. Um, we actually had a couple of very, very nice episodes recently on benefit-risk with a benefit-risk special interest group that... Um, yeah, we both, Neshtet and myself, have been working on quite a lot. Me recently a little bit less <laughs> for, due to other commitments. But um, yes, it was also a very, very nice thing. And all these kind of different things are, of course, interrelated. Um, you talked a little bit about problems or headaches. And, and I think I'm not with this requirements to present every patient relevant endpoint by every subgroup that is pre-specified. It's, it's of course a big headache for people. Um, but a little bit in general, um, why do you think, uh, you know, subgroups such a big, you know, headache for, for lots of statisticians all the time? Well, so I think I think it's a it's a it's a bit of an irritation for statisticians because I guess we think of it more in a I guess in a numerical perspective, right? If you do enough subgroup analyses, you'll find you'll find one one uh, significant interaction by chance, and we know this. Um, we say this all the time, but you know the people who are requesting the analyses, they know it, but they still want these subgroup analyses anyway. And I think that's the point where it gets a bit frustrating is that you know eventually if you do enough of them you'll find something and that something is probably by chance i mean if you've done you know if you do 20 of them there'll be one by chance um what might be a frustration sometimes is is if that one generates another 20 <laughs> um and then it goes on and on and and you know there's always uh, a lot of the time i think most subgroup analysis requests have some sort of 
um, clinical justification to them. So once the result is there, you know, there's there's always a rationale for the finding, and so that's kind of maybe the the, the frustrating point. Another one maybe is just the um, the the um, you know, the amount of processes involved in actually undertaking it. And every time, if it's a separate request every time, um, you know, the organizational burden becomes quite high. And I think that might be frustrating as well. So rather, I think some statisticians might very much prefer to have all the requests in one go. And then that's a big project and it gets done in one one swoop. It's a lot easier to manage. Um, but, uh, so that might also be a frustration. And also, I guess, these subgroup analyses, they don't come from just one stakeholder. They One subgroup analysis comes from one, another one comes from another. You get about 100 from <laughs> Germany. Um, and then, you know, you have all of these, you know, some come from reimbursement space, some come from there, and it just becomes all of this, um, it just becomes very difficult yeah, to manage. And if we talk today about subgroup analysis, it's, it's really about looking into um, how, let's say, let's say uh, females separate from males and, and things like that. It's, it's not so much in looking into a specific group and then ignoring the rest of it, isn't it? Well, so I think some, you know, you, you have different, uh, I think it all depends on what the purpose uh, of the analysis is. So sometimes you want to know, you know, I, I think it, it is probably, it is best practice to always have the complement. So if you're interested in males, you would look at females as well, because um, then you would maybe just compare to the overall effect, which is which is not not necessarily the right way to do it. So you always should always have the complement to compare against. Um, um, the the presentation was sort of broadly about subgroup analysis, but it was more around uh, subgroup detection. So maybe there where you're interested in um, where you where, where it's not like pre-specified subgroups saying male female or age fifty versus you know more than fifty. Um, it's more of a you know here are the variables and you know try and find a subgroup kind of exercise but you know the principles are the same um in your career as, as a clinical statistician um, can you give an example where you know you were really frustrated about some subgroup analysis so i think um um Uh, obviously, there are many times. I'm I'm gonna try and use something else than um, Amnog, <laughs> um, but um, it 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 comes quite often with um, when you have, for example, biomarkers. But you know, biomarkers are probably the most uh, headache generating variable for for statisticians because obviously there are infinite ways you can dichotomize a biomarker or a continuous variable because they're they're continuous so um i think it just becomes very frustrating when it's sort of well yes you can look at this threshold that threshold or oh, what happens if we change it to this threshold or what happens if we look at quartiles tertiles deciles you know just the list is like endless whereas you know when it's male female there's only one analysis i can do with that and then i'm done and you know there's not much else i can do um so you know and and then you know with the continuous variable then it's well what if you analyze it as a continuous variable and then you start looking at um you know, fractional polynomials, all of that stuff. So it becomes very frustrating because the possibilities are endless. And really, d depending on what the purpose of the analysis is, um, the, the the approach would be very different. So um, 
um, you know, that, that was kind of one of the points of the presentation as well, was really focusing on the purpose, particularly with this kind of biomarker. Um, if the purpose is to, for example, truly understand the underlying relationship between this continuous uh, covariate, which can be a biomarker or any, anything else, um, then that should be a modeling approach, right? You have to try and put some sort of, um, some sort of model that is based on that covariate and try and uh try and model the the treatment effect as a function of that covariate however however functional form you've imposed on it and try and figure out what the best functional form for that for that covariate is so that's that's that that would be that specific purpose if the purpose was well actually you know i want to find a, a patient subgroup by this biomarker that gives me twice the you know, two times more efficacy than my overall population, then obviously what you're looking now is what is the threshold I need to apply on that biomarker to get that um, kind of benefit? That's a very different question. And that might be more, you know, applying thresholds until you get to somewhere where you're at that level. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a couple of points. I think that the first is kind of this frustration about what I see is the right cut point is that, you know, having lots of cut points for the same things. I've seen analysis plans where, you know, they looked into age and they had three or four different ways to categorize it. <laughs> um, one thing that I actually discourage very much is these, um, let's say, data-driven thresholds like median or quartiles or something like this, because it's really difficult then to... Um, pool across different studies you know you have one medium from one study and another medium from the other study and then you want to kind of pool things across studies and but the subgroups don't fit <laughs> and so, so um i find that set quite um irritating at times and yeah well i guess um, i guess medians medians have their place in uh, i guess very limited applications for example if you don't have uh uh, a, a, a clinical threshold already established, then you might just, you know, use use a median, but then that median would would become the new threshold. <laughs> but then I would actually, I think, I would look at the median and then take a relevant, you know, number close to the median and put mm -hmm. that fixed. So, so I don't know if your median now yes. of uh, age is fifty two, then I would say, okay, let's compare beyond and below fifty, and then. That is also something that you will uh, later put in some some papers or something like this because you'll probably not put in the paper. Oh, mm -hmm. if you're 52 and two months and six days old, then that's a threshold. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But but what really comes through is a lot of frustration is about there's so much ambiguity in the original research question, isn't it? So, so it's kind of, oh, let's do subgroup analysis. And then you think about, well, you could have lots of different approaches to it because you could have, you know, the underlying question could be so much different. Yeah. So, so I think that is really one, maybe, you know, summarizes the biggest frustration, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, that was really the, so in, I had, um, in the presentation, I have three, uh, three key things. And the first one is purpose, really identified the purpose. What is the research question? What are you trying to show? What is the end product? How is it going to be used? Because that will obviously 
determine everything else and the approach that you want to use yes so in the in the presentation actually i had an example where i ask uh, three questions for the same data and they can lead to very different approaches and uh, but um i think generally from the client side i'm just calling them clients but from the stakeholder side um they might think that those three questions are actually the same question but from a statistical viewpoint or a methodological viewpoint they're actually very different and um the questions i had for example if you say i want to identify a subgroup of patients with enhanced efficacy that's very specific we're saying what we want to do is take the whole population and identify one subgroup within them that will have higher efficacy and generally that higher efficacy should have a threshold because obviously bigger subgroup might have less enhanced efficacy smaller subgroup more enhanced so you need some sort of threshold attached to that but that's one very specific question if i'm saying i want to identify different subgroups of patients with differential efficacy now the question is very different what i'm trying to do is segregate my population into different patients uh, with different characteristics that have different um, efficacy expected uh, efficacy so that's not a one subgroup answer to a question that's multiple subgroups um and then uh, on the flip side if i'm saying i want to identify clinical characteristics which help predict enhanced efficacy that lends itself maybe to a more model-based approach where we're uh, re relating uh, an efficacy estimate to a regression uh, a regression formula so where um you know continuous covariates are modeled as continuous and and so on so yeah. then you can say well for this combination of characteristics i have this expected efficacy so that's much less subgroup that's more like an individual um an individual prediction so those they, they might all be the same question when it comes from the stakeholder side but actually they will have very different approaches and the worst thing would be to do the wrong approach or do too much <laughs> more than necessary to answer a you know to answer a question really good point it's like with the estimates framework as well you know someone's asks you okay what's the efficacy of this compound and you say hmm, i think we need to have a little bit longer discussion here <laughs> before i can give you the answers that you are really uh, after and um, here it's the same with the subgroups uh, approach. It's about active listening at the beginning to nail down what is really the most important thing. And it could easily happen that, you know, um, even a team, everybody thinks we're, they are talking about the same thing. And de facto, everybody thinks about something different. <laughs> and so, so there's some effort required to bring the team together and and talk through these different possibilities with the team to help them understand, okay, what are we really looking forward? What is kind of the conclusions that we will write in the paper or that we will communicate with, with stakeholders? How will that look like in the end? Thinking from the end helps a lot to get away with with this frustration what are the other two steps that you that you mentioned um yeah so um so the first one was purpose again um 
And so the two other things, and and this is generally in sort of a maybe a, a more of a detection space, but I think it applies to to any kind of subgroup analysis, is to define the outcomes, and then to define the parameters. And the outcomes is particularly um, important here, um, and it depends on the question. So what are the outcomes that you're interested in? One of the major frustrations of subgroup analysis is that you might have two different subgroups for two different outcomes. So how do you use that information? It's very difficult. Um, so we need to think about that upfront. So what are the outcomes? Um, how are they defined? How are they categorized? All of those kinds of um, specific things. And the last one, of course, is to um, define the parameters. So the parameters are actually what are the covariates that you're going to include in the explanation of those outcomes. Um, and of course, then... Uh, there's a side question to that. Well, actually, I can have lots of predictors. Some of them might be things that I want to adjust for, which are of importance to adjust for, but they might not be clinically relevant. Um, so, for example, region. Yeah, region is usually important to adjust for when you carry out analyses, but you don't want to predict something based on region, right? Because <laughs> the most useless thing would be to say, well, actually, the best subgroup is... Um, um, is this country. No, that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> what are the clinical characteristics that mean that that region has has better efficacy, for example? So, um, you know, region is good to adjust for because it accounts for things like standard of care and all of these other things that maybe isn't measured very well or adjusted for in your model. But obviously, in a prediction side, it's not something you want to use for predicting. So you want to split those variables out as well. Yeah, it doesn't uh, isn't helpful if you say to your patients move to France because then you will be better off. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I guess on the outcome side, yeah, yeah. So so please three steps is first purpose defining the endpoints and having a good discussion about the covariates. This is a three steps, isn't it? Yes. Okay. So so in terms of uh, let's maybe dig a little bit deeper into to the purpose. Um, what are the kind of more granular steps that, that we need to think say, about the purpose. So I think that's that's probably the most difficult step, and it's probably the, the step that requires the most time. And I think that what is important there is really to bring together all of the stakeholders and have a, a clear discussion about what the purpose of the analysis is. And as as you mentioned previously, I think the key the key determinant here is to focus on what the end result is. So focus the team on identifying what the end result is. So what is what is the end result? What is the table you want to see in a publication or what is the table you want to share with your customers? What is what is it that you want to see? Because depending on what you want to see, I need to decide what I'm going to do because what I'm going to do is going to be different depending on what you want to see. So and they could, they might have a very clear idea of what they actually want to see which is probably very different from what they're asking you to do. And so basically, I think the best way is to really start from that end result because they have a, probably a very clear idea of what they want to actually see. And maybe it might be something that's already in a different paper that they want to replicate. And that really helps. So focus on the end result. And then we can work our way back from there. Um, and I think really the key thing is to really um, don't assume that the team actually know what yeah. they want. Um, 
so you know when they're asking for something and they say something or you use they say you know or they ask a particular question and you think that they're asking that question you know that the words are actually the right words to use in that question don't assume that so you really need to probe into it um and and also don't don't assume that they know how they want it and especially um I think one of the, the the first slide that I shared, and that's also in the purpose thing. You always start with purpose, um, because what you don't want to do is start with like a method. <laughs> well, that's probably the worst thing, but it happens. Um, so, for example, um, I think a, a lot of a lot of statisticians would have had this question asked to them. It might be, oh, can we use machine learning to um, or deep learning, whatever they want to? Can we use machine learning to identify a subgroup? Um, the answer should be n no. So let's go back. What is the purpose? Yeah. Um, never start with a method because that will generally, I mean, almost ultimately will lead to something, to generating some sort of evidence which is off 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 the mark because um, I think, you know, uh, the, 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 the person asking for that analysis probably doesn't know um, about, machine learning doesn't know whether it will actually generate what they want they generally know what they want they think machine learning will give it to them so i think that's really the, the emphasis always purpose first and focus on the end result um, and then and then there'll be a working the way back there and you have to be really clear on what they want to see and how they're going to use it yeah and i think um when you just you know talk to maybe just a physician um it's sometimes good to talk to also the the customer of the physician so to say be it kind of you know someone in marketing or regulatory yes or, or something like this or, um, and understand what was their original request and so so you can uh, see how it will be actually used where will it end up somewhere in the label how will it may uh, end up there um how do kind of promotional material uh, should look like. So I think that's also very often quite um, insightful because even between the marketing and the medical person already, something may be missed. And uh, I've seen that very often. So, you know, already the first miscommunication happens there and then going back to the source is quite helpful. The other thing is, um, what's your experience with kind of showing alternative ways to to answer such a you know subgroup generic question and i've i've i had sometimes quite good experience with where i said well we could do this but we could also do you know this other uh, way of uh, approaching this question and you know come up with a projection prediction score for for each patient so that you can basically okay if you fulfill this characteristics that increases your you know uh, probability of getting a response by 10 percent, and this gives you another boost of five uh, percent and so on um what's your experience with you know showing what's possible Yeah, and and so I guess um, <laughs> if you follow the three the three steps, uh, so to me it's almost like if you have a clear purpose, you have clear definition of outcomes, clear definition of parameters. You know, that sort of yeah. funnels down the the methodological options to just a few, right? So I think that already helps, and then you get to the point where okay, mm. we can use this or this or this. 
And here are generally the advantages and disadvantages of each of these. Um, and, and I think there that there's a discussion on which one might be more, you know, more appropriate or more suited to the, to the, to the, to the exact way they want to use it. And maybe then they might, you know, decide, oh, actually, yeah, that's a lot closer to the way, um, we wanted to use it. Um, I've, I've always had an interest in using sort of new things. Um, so that, that was the case when I uh, wanted to do my first machine learning project. Um, it was just a general, you know, subgroup um, analysis question. Um, and then, you know, um, came up with a, a, a method. And then I just suggested, well, why don't we do this instead? You know, this can have this advantage, that advantage. Um, so, um, um, you know, it, it, it's yeah. usually, I think, when you get to that point where all the all the parameters of the analysis are very clear. I, yeah. I use the word parameter now, but um, I don't mean the same as just the parameters. All of the... <laughs> All of the the specification of the analysis is very clear. Then I think the the methods discussion is a lot easier to have, and I think then the teams are more open to alternatives because they have a clear idea of what they want now because you've gone through it with them, and you have a clear idea of what they want now because you've gone through it with them. So I think it's then a lot easier that the the trust is in place, um, the communication is in place, so it's a lot easier to have that um, discussion on on methods and to try something different and if you feel particularly that a different method is more suitable i think you know having had all that discussion up front it will be a lot better received to use that alternative yeah yeah i think that here it comes down really to the leadership skill of of the individual statistician that he knows how to communicate how to active listen how to Builds the relationship and the trust with the team, so that um, yeah, you you can boil it down to the right right uh, purpose and the right uh, approach. Yes, and I think the main mistake that statisticians make is to focus on the method when they want to talk about methods. You shouldn't be focusing on the method. I think it's just focus on the result and let them pick the result that they want and then because if the method leads to that particular result presented in that particular way they don't need to understand what the method is you know what the particularity of the method is they just need to know maybe the 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 big you know interpretation advantages limitations of that table versus this table or that formula versus that formula that output versus that output and then and then they they can pick the one or you can have a discussion about which is more appropriate to have. And then, you know, they don't need to know what method you're using, in all honesty. You can tell them what method you're using afterwards. But I don't think they're really interested in the method. <laughs> they're interested in what the result. And so the worst thing a statistician can do is start a presentation by saying, okay, we have two options, method one, um, and some lovely formula would be the best, uh, worst thing to do. Uh, method two, and then go through the details of them. No. So really just, again, start from the end, focus on the result. And really you can ignore, you can probably skip the whole, you know, methodological detail. Um, because that's not really the, the thing that the stakeholders are interested in. It's really the result and how yeah. it can be used. Um, obviously, yeah. Um, so that's maybe if one, one big tip would be that, you know, focus, focus on that's, the results. That's a good point. Okay. Let's go to the step number two, uh, which is about the, the, uh, endpoints. Um, what are common problems there? 
Well, so the common, the major problem, so ideally you want a single outcome, right? You have a primary endpoint and that's great if you have a very clear primary endpoint and that's the most important and all decisions in the world are made from that endpoint, then that, that would be really good. But generally you have multiple outcomes. The problem happens when you have multiple outcomes and you're conducting subgroup analyses or looking for a subgroup, uh, you know, subgroup detection, the problem is the same. You might have conflicting subgroup results for different outcomes. So you might have that one subgroup um, seems to be the one who benefits most on this outcome, but it's a different subgroup on another outcome. There's that problem is the first thing. And also that is coupled, of course, with chance findings. Because if, if you have 10 subgroups, one outcome, yes, that's that's fairly controllable. Mm. You know, the, the risk of a false positive is you know, controllable. But if you have now 10 subgroups, five outcomes, and suddenly you've, you know, you have five times more analyses, you're going to get some, some false positives in there. And how do you balance that out if you get conflicting subgroups in, in different outcomes? That is the main, that is the main risk, especially if, you know, you want to, you want to build up some, some strategic, uh, you know, whether, you know, you're trying to get some strategic direction by doing the subgroup analysis. For example, if you have phase two A or B results and you want to you want to refine your population for a phase three study you know you want to make sure that the population you find is going to be a population that is you know better on most outcomes at least or the primary and some secondary outcomes so it's it becomes very tedious. So one of the main um, solutions to that problem, which is um, in some situations, it's actually very uh, a very easy solution. In some, it's a lot more difficult to apply, but it can be to combine the outcomes into composites, so that you know you're you're almost uh, you're almost combining well yeah combining all of these into one, and that way you're just having one subgroup answer. You're minimizing the the probability of chance of uh, false positives, um, you're eliminating your risk of conflicting results, and you're mm. identifying a subgroup that I guess is doing better on average, right? On on you know uh, on on all all the outcomes on average. Um, you know, obviously there are many many ways you can combine outcomes, and that's maybe the subject of a completely different discussion. But I had a yeah, I had a very simple example. It's very easy when you have, if you have, if you can dichotomize all of your endpoints and almost like make a scoring system out of it, it's very easy. Obviously, that might be a clear example. But I had an example in the slides where it's, um, uh, this would be like a respiratory example. You can have like an exacerbation event. So, you know, they have exacerbations events or they don't have exacerbation events. That's pretty easy. And then quality of life, you can use a clinically important, um, uh, uh, minimum clinically important difference, for example. And you can have the patients that have achieved that and that haven't. So then you have, you have, you know, four different things which you can combine in a way you want. Um, so you can say that, well, they have enhanced benefit if they haven't had any exacerbations or they had a minimum clinically important improvement in quality of life that's my enhanced benefit group um, or maybe just benefit group and then everyone else who had um, who had a negative on both of those is a, a, a group that has no um, less or no benefit so that's very easy I've combined two outcomes um, and then I can I can do my subgroup analysis on that but yeah that's the major issue with outcomes and you know it, it, it gets very confusing to digest all of the subgroup information when you have multiple outcomes, multiple subgroups. Um, and, and that's part of the, the challenge with, um, with the analyses that are done for Germany, obviously, because they're being done 
you know, it's four different subgroups and then a repeat yeah. of yeah. all of the clinically relevant um, uh, patient relevant endpoints. Um, and, and then you have a long, you have a long list. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel uh, the, the, the job of the German team is always very difficult because they have to digest all of this information. It's very difficult to digest. And, and, you know, you might have some conflicts and they have a pretty good way of trying to, um, uh, make um, um, some conclusions from all of those analyses, but um, uh, it's, it's it's very challenging. I actually think that visualizations of these subgroup approaches are really helping a lot with understanding patterns. So, so if you can see, um, if you can sort all your subgroup analysis by endpoint or, you know, the other way around, uh, look into a specific subgroup and then look across all the endpoints or yeah, one way or the other, then you can much faster see whether there's any patterns. So so I, I get always kind of a little bit skeptical about a subgroup if there's, you know, just this one random endpoint that is... Uh, there's a significant interaction and all the other endpoints says there's none. Um, mm-hmm. Or on the other hand, if, if you know, um, there's one specific subgroup that, that has an outcome, but, you know, closely related subgroups don't uh, show this interaction, not, not even pointing in the same direction. Yeah. And, and I think here it's, it's really helpful to see, visualizations because then you also much better see whether that is um you know this confidence intervals just shifted a little bit or whether you know there's a really big change um uh, rather than you know just scanning through whether p-values are significant yes or no which unfortunately the german system does quite a lot yeah, and and I think well again an, another area for statisticians to really improve on is is the visualization piece. So you know on 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 your uh, on your example, something very useful might be a dynamic graph where you can actually just sort you know you can sort yeah. by um, sort by subgroup or sort by outcome, and then you can actually visually see um, what's going on. Because I guess yes, if the best way is to see all of the all of the results in one in one figure, and then you can oh yeah you can see you know, where, 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 where the subgroup is moving. And then you can see across all of the endpoints and then you say, oh yeah, that, that, that one result probably, I mean, we do it for safety a lot. You have the nice little forest plots for safety. And that's generally quite useful because you see, you can see like all, all of the safety in one, in, 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 in one, or the, at least the, um, the safety endpoints of interest in, in, in one figure. And it's very useful for making, for, for, for interpreting that data because sometimes you see that maybe one safety endpoint is looking like it's, uh, like there's a signal, but none of the other ones have that signal, even if they're related, um, safety endpoints. So, um, those are usually very useful. And it's also very good, of course, for identifying signals in the, in the safety, um, space. But, um, you can use the same principles for subgroup analysis. Okay. Any other thoughts about <clears throat> the second step in terms of, um, getting the endpoint right? Um, well, I mean, the, yeah, the endpoint, <laughs> the endpoint right is a very different question. Um, but yes, um, 
Yeah, I think it's just trying to make sure that we, I think I usually come from an approach, yes, keep only the endpoints that are important for decision making. Don't include all all other endpoints. You know, if, if an endpoint is there for exploratory purposes, do it separately as an exploratory analysis. Focus really, you know, if, if this is this is for an important decision, focus on the outcomes that are actually relevant for a decision. Uh, that are relevant for, I don't know, regulatory licensing, reimbursement for the patient. You know, focus only on those which are important for your decision for your stakeholder, and just keep the rest away. Don't don't include them because it might be nice to include. Because um, you know, even I've seen it through experience. Even if you include outcomes in there that are just there for, because they're nice to have, down the line they're gonna confuse people <laughs> so really um you know really the, the key here is really to um to make it as lean as possible to answer the the yeah. question of interest um because generally there's a tendency always to add more in right always yeah. a tendency to add more in um oh if oh what if we see something on this what if we see something on that um so just try and keep it as lean as possible and again i think this comes back to the statisticians leadership skills and um um uh, really negotiation skills um and really you know emphasizing that it's really important to stick to the research question and what is relevant to that research question yeah, and i think uh taking a lean approach is also a nice uh segue into the next uh into the last step um, and it's uh, about choosing the the right covariates the right subgroup determining uh mm -hmm. covariates so um we talked a little bit about kind of things like a uh, country at the beginning but um what are good steps to do there so I mean, um, and, and I think all statisticians do this, and it's good. So when you have an analysis plan, really list all of the predictors, make a whole list of everything that's going to be included as a covariate, and um, obviously, I'd say keep it as short as possible. Um, but it's it's good to list them so that everyone knows what they are. First of all, it's not necessarily useful for the statistician, but it's useful for whoever is reviewing the analysis plan. So list them all. And then what I would really strongly suggest is list possible categorizations for continuous predictors. So what are the clinically relevant thresholds? So for age, for biomarkers, for weight, list the relevant thresholds um, because it's very easy to do this up front and then not get into the, get into the situation where um, you're testing multiple different thresholds at a later time um, to avoid that. You should, Uh, define them up front um, and then and they actually also includes the references where this is coming from i think you know sometimes this is just coming from a advisory board sometimes this is coming from literature sometimes it's coming from guideline or regulatory requests so, so I, i think it's really important to have that within C specifications because that way you can always come back to what was really the evidence for that. Was that just kind of a random thought at an advisory board or is there actually, you know, a very, very good uh, reason like it's a, it's a guideline that, that talks about this threshold? Yeah. 
that's that's uh, very very useful indeed. I think, yeah, uh, we, people don't put very many references generally in these, and it actually would be quite useful to know where they come from, especially when you read that analysis plan. You know, a few years later, and you're wondering why was that exactly. threshold? <laughs> <laughs> And the last step would be really to decide what is clinically relevant. Um, so what are the predictors that you're going to make clinical decisions on? And what are the variables that are just important to adjust for? So, I mean, age, if you're doing a survival analysis, age is important to adjust for, but it might not be important to make a clinical decision because obviously age is very important to adjust for when you're looking at mortality, but it won't, it won't impact the it may not impact the efficacy you get from treatment. So those are really important to distinguish um, because uh, it will it will have some implications for the methods that you use. Um, another important uh, factor to consider as well, and I think sometimes it's useful to have this discussion up front as well, depending on where your method, methodology is going, is to mm -hmm. think about correlated variables up front and then already make this decisions on what you would keep. So one one very simple example is if you have PROs and the PROs have uh, um, domain scores mm -hmm. and you want to include the PRO and the domain scores, you know, possibly in your list of characteristics, it's useful there to then say, well, if I'm if I'm doing um, if I'm doing a, a, a model with uh, a multivariate model, which one? Should I obviously if I do subgroup analyses, yes, I can do all five. <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> sorry, the the total score and the domain scores separately as subgroups. But if I'm going to include them in a uh, in a multivariate model, which one should I use? And if they make that decision up front, then that's quite useful. So usually it will probably be the total score. Um, uh, but another yeah. so if if they want weight and BMI, for example, they they should pick which one. If they want, if there's obesity as a comorbidity and BMI, then they need to pick which one. So, you know, they're, they're, if you have that decision up front on the very obvious um, correlated variables, then that also eliminates some uh, discussion um, down the end and also has implications for methods because depending on what method you use, um, you need to remove, uh, you need to avoid collinearity. Some methods you can keep variables that are collinear. So it um, at least that's already set out up front which ones you would keep. Yeah, but I think even if some of these methods can deal with the collinearity, it always becomes a little bit messy thereafter with the clinical interpretation. So, so if you have in a tree-based algorithm, for example, you have when uh, one part of the tree you split by BMI and another part of the tree you split by by weight. For me, that always looks like a random thing. <laughs> yeah. So what I like with um, with uh, like random forests is I would I'll, I'll generally include all of them in my first go, and then based on variable importance, okay. then I'll select. I'll select the one that is sort of most important. If there's if there's no real um, objection on if there's no real uh, pre-specified choice. So, for example, you can see whether it's whether because it, it might be that weight is you know when you have biologics things like that weight might be more sensitive than BMI. Um, so, um, so maybe weight would be better, and it's good to see um, in in a variable importance plot which one is maybe a bit higher is selected more often, and then and then you can then eliminate and rerun it again. Um, yeah, in the final in the final thing, it's good to have only one you know one variable of all of the correlated variables. Yes, because otherwise the interpretation is quite tricky. But you can use it for variable selection. 
you can use all of them to select your variables um, in, if the method yep. allows. Yep. And it's of course good to have a discussion about that upfront because then you can actually much better explain what in your discussion is, is really pre-specified and, and what's, what's data-driven in post hoc. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also very good to include that in any methods part of your paper. Okay, any any other um, thing to keep in mind for the covariates? Um, I guess we talked about this earlier, but you know, always be wary of the these these linear the, um, these continuous mm -hmm. um, covariates. Um, the problem, you know, depending on the method that you use, uh, that that will be dichotomized maybe so you just need to understand that if you have a truly linearly related variable to your to your to your outcome um anywhere you split the patient population into two you'll get two groups of distinct efficacy so that's where those predefined thresholds come in quite handy so um sometimes you might just want to categorize your continuous variable because at least then you're imposing what the what where that break happens um whereas you know if you have like a random forest and you put in a, a linear predictor i'm um, sorry a continuous covariate it'll just break it somewhere where it optimizes the the the, the algorithm um but if you dichotomize it up front it can only pick that threshold basically so depending on your question you know you have to really think carefully what happens with those continuous covariates um Because yeah, some methods you can't you can't use they're not regression based, so you can't use it as a as a linear predictor or some yeah. functional form of that. Awesome, that was really really good to go through these uh, three steps. And um, yeah, um, as a listener, you can find of course these slides also on the uh, PSI homepage, and I will put a link to that in the show notes, um, so you can. Uh, look through the uh, slides and if you're a PSI member you can also have uh, uh, listen to Nested's um, presentation and, and see the slides at the same time so that will be quite nice in terms of the presentation now you received this award being the best presenter at this year's PSI conference generally how do you approach presentations um, I guess um Usually when I think of generating a slide deck, I try and think about what a bad presentation would be or one that I didn't enjoy or one that I wasn't able to pay attention to. And I try and avoid all of those things. So generally the things that um, that sort of d diminish my enjoyment of a presentation might be, you know, very crowded slides, lots of words too many things in general, too many messages, trying to cram a 30-minute presentation into a 15-minute presentation, um, or just simply someone who reads off the slides. You know, sometimes you have very crowded slides and the presenter is just reading them. So I try and avoid all of that. So um, um, generally what I do, so PSI, those were about 15-minute presentations. So for a 15-minute presentation, I just think about, you know, what are the two, three key messages I want to convey? Um, and I just think about those two, three key messages, and I just focus on those. So my only objective is to make sure that the audience understands the two, three things that I want to tell them and just focus on that. So try and not bring in any anything else, not, not try and 
not try and give too many messages. Um, so the whole slide deck would be built around those two, three key messages, which is you know all I'd want to put in a 15 minute presentation. And that really, you know, when you think of a 15 minute presentation, you're not there to really educate the audience. You're there to really just inform and present something to spark interest what you really want is for them you know after your presentation they'll go and they'll look they'll look up the things that you talked about they'll you know they'll go back and and see the slides so you don't necessarily want them to to learn something new per se you want them to have an interest in learning something new so you have to think about that when you're doing the presentation i think so to me that means that um you can't really go too much into the detail of things like methods you want to just introduce a method and if they're interested they'll go and see more obviously in a one hour long presentation it would be very different but this is for 15 minutes and then i guess the final thing that's really important is to think of slides as a way to enhance uh, a narrative. So if you're trying to deliver a message, um, you want people to focus on what you're saying, not necessarily what's on your slides. So the slide should be there as a, um, um, as a, as a, as a, you know, as an addition to your narrative and as a means to deliver your message. And really um, you don't want you don't want people to just read the slide and, you know, they, they already know everything you're going to say during that slide. No. Um, so the way I use slides really is more like bullets for me to remember what to say. So it's good to, for me to structure what I'm talking about. Um, and also what I try to avoid as much as possible is just words. Um, um, I, I, I try to always reduce whatever I'm trying to put into slides into either, you know, colorful things, graphical presentations, pictures, um, some nice transitions to, to, to make it enjoyable at the same time. So, you know, there's something to pay attention to at the same time. Um, but really, yeah, for a 15 minute presentation, you don't necessarily want self-contained slide decks where all the information is in there. You want really just that to be a, 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 a medium for your, um, for your, uh, presentation, for your talk. Yeah, I completely agree. It's kind of it's first having the audience in mind. And I think your approach of thinking about what you would enjoy and what you don't enjoy is, <laughs> is a really, really nice tip. And then honing on, on just the two or three things, like here in this presentation, we talked about these three important steps to avoid um, uh, uh, any frustrations and, and to guide through it. And if you have these three things in mind, then you're also nice prepared. If everything, you know, goes off script or, you know, your presentation is, um, you know, the last in the session and the other presentations run over and now you have only 10 in, instead of 15 minutes. Now, you know, okay, what are really the three things that I want to communicate? And you can make sure that you deliver on them. And it, I completely agree. It's about having these first and then the slides are just supporting you and not the other way around. Um, I think that also came very, very nicely through in your presentation style that you are not kind of just always looking at the, at the slides. And because they are not that wordy, you also don't need to look so much at the slides. You can grasp directly what's on there. It's um, it's not that you read 10 bullet points and it, each bullet point is 
a complete sentence that you need to read and then while reading your account listening to the presenter and it's um quite easy and fast to digest what's on the slides yes and i guess yeah i mean obviously yeah for a 15 minute presentation you, you can't give a lecture so you know it's you know obviously they're very different the audience the context the time or or contribute you know if if it were a one hour session um one presentation for an hour obviously you that's more educational now you can teach a method you can go through the details you know the presentation might be very different um but you know it all depends on 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 the on on exactly you know what the what the environment is if you would have one key recommendation for giving a great presentation what would that be um it would be really just um uh have the least amount of words possible and have uh figures and colors i think that's really what's important i know it sounds very <laughs> very wishy-washy but yeah i think the 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 less there are words the more you replace the words with images graphics visual representations the the more fun and enjoyable your presentation will be and if it's fun and enjoyable the more people will pay attention to it And I think it also helps you to make sure that you have your message mm -hmm. clear mm -hmm. and that you know your stuff. Because if you can condense it so much that you, for a single slide, you only have a picture there and you can talk to that, then you know your stuff. And um, to be honest, I also find it much easier to get these things through internal approval systems because... Uh, There's not very much in there. <laughs> that people get yeah. critic about <laughs> Okay, awesome. That was a, such a um, great discussion about subgroups where, where we talk about the three steps of um, that you need to go through the purpose, spend most of your time there, then become clear on uh, the endpoints that you want to look through, um, whether you want to combine them or whether you want to look into them one by one. Um, all the different ways you can um, look into the covariates, that's the third step, and, and kind of make sure that you have, for example, uh, specified which cut points you want to look into and have there the uh, justification for these Uh, specifications there and through that really avoid lots of the frustrations that many people have because it can be a quite burdensome uh, topic if you're iterating through this very very often just because you didn't get the purpose right at the beginning so thanks again um for this nice interview thank you very much for inviting me alexander Okay, and talk to you soon. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this show, which was created in association with PSI as much as I did. The interview was really, really nice. Thanks for listening to it. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes, for example, the slides, the link to the slides, and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. And also check out the homepage of the Effective Statistician Leadership Program at theeffectivestatistician.com slash course. There you will find all the further details. It would be awesome to have you. So 
reach your potential, lead great science, you see there's a leadership in there, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. <music>